0: This weekend, the Six Nations begins. The tournament that many rugby fans think is the most exciting on the calendar.
2: The space, and Daly goes into the corner, and England have their second try.
0: But increasingly, there are concerns
2: that there's a heavy price to be paid for this excitement. I slightly worry that a tidal wave could be brewing here and it could come crashing down. Parents concerned for the health and safety of their kids. That is the sort of the existential threat to the game, if you like. You're listening to Stories of
0: Our Times and The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm David Aronovich. Today, brain trauma, the issue rugby can no longer ignore. The physical price some professionals pay for their sport is back in the headlines this week. Today it's the first of two summit meetings organised by the government to assess the impact of head injuries with the aim of stepping up efforts to improve player welfare. Everybody, boys, girls, men, women, go into the game with their eyes wide open. It is extremely physical, however things need to change. But can kids go into this with their eyes wide open? They're kids after all. So with around one in six 11- to 15-year-olds playing rugby union regularly in England, might parents soon be having second thoughts? Let's start with the story of an ordinary Australian rugby union family.
2: Barry Taylor was a Sydney boy, tough, won life competitions, loved his rugby, played for Manly, a great love of the game, and went on and coached the game afterwards. That's
0: Owen Slott, the Times rugby correspondent, talking about Barry Taylor. A former rugby player from Sydney, Barry played during the 60s and 70s, representing North
2: Sydney club Manly well over 300 times. In his uh, late 50s, he started becoming um, forgetful, he started showing unusual behavioural characteristics. He would show flashes of anger, he would behave in uh, acute manner acute emotional responses to mild uh, happenings and this just became more and more extreme, his son Stephen recalls a time where something triggered his father and his father held him up against a wall with his hands around his throat and they end up uh, wrestling on the ground and Stephen was able to overpower him and hold him down until the rage left him This was a condition that that would plateau and then get worse, plateau and get worse, and his memory got worse. They thought it was Alzheimer's. And then, in 2013, Barry Taylor
0: died, aged 77. Following his death, it was suggested it'd be worth trying to find out what might have caused his erratic behaviour in his later years.
2: One of the players who had been coached by him, he spoke to Barry Taylor's wife, said he might want to uh, investigate this, and he mentioned the the Boston Brain Bank, where they look at uh, brains of the athletes who have passed away and diagnose what might have happened to them. His brain was sent to Boston. The Boston Brain Bank um, diagnosed that he had CTE, which is chronic traumatic encephalopathy, which is a degenerative uh, uh, disease of the brain related to repeated concussive knocks to the head.
0: If CTE was a thing then a man like Barry, who'd played a tough physical sport where knocks to the head are common, would seem more likely to be a victim. But this story doesn't end with Barry Taylor, because the next chapter concerns Barry's son, Stephen.
2: Stephen had played rugby as a kid. It was probably inevitable if you were Barry's son. But he got five concussions, and at the age of 15, he stopped playing the game.
0: Five concussions?
2: Yeah, he got five concussions uh, from playing as a young man. Stopped playing at 15... But then the the tragic end to this is a year ago, he fell backwards off a chair, hit his head and met his death. This freak accident happened last February when Stephen was just 56. His brain was then donated to scientific research and they found that he too had CTE. So he had the same thing? He had the same thing as his father, a much milder version of it, but there it was.
0: Now This discovery is potentially a landmark one, the one that could change everything. But how many former players who stopped at schoolboy level have donated their brains for analysis? Stephen's case may be unique.
2: This is probably the only brain that has been diagnosed of a rugby player who stopped playing at the age of 15. I'm sure it must be. But there it was, a man who had stopped playing the game at 15 had the same CTE that his father did, who played 325 games at the top level. That makes you worried.
0: Does that mean that rugby is dangerous for kids, essentially?
2: This is the problem. What does that mean? It means that we have a sample of one. A
0: problem here is that CTE, this progressive degenerative disease of the brain, can't be picked up in a scan. To really see it, the brain has to be removed from the skull for examination.
2: Of the hundreds of thousands of kids who have played rugby around the world, how many of them have CT? We don't know. Was that CT caused by Stevens' rugby when he was a young teenager? Again, we don't know. Was he genetically more likely to get it than many other kids? You know, his father had it; he had it. He he genetically more predisposed. Uh, Again, we don't know. There are lots of questions here,
0: and as Owen is outlining, many unknowns. But the story of Steven Taylor, playing schoolboy rugby until 15, stopping, dying 41 years later, and having brain injuries potentially connected to the sport, is clearly worrying. It leads naturally to this question. Could playing rugby at school, even for only a short period of time, lead to brain trauma in later life? The problem, as we've addressed, is we only have a sample of one. For Owen, who's been the Times rugby correspondent for the last seven years, player welfare, and especially head injuries in adults playing professional
2: rugby, is something that's been on his radar for a while. I was always aware that rugby had this story, which we're talking about now, and I've written a fair bit about it, but just of late it's uh, it's really become, I think, the most important thing in the game. In a way, this story has been around Owen's whole life. I remember being a um a frozen prepubescent pubescent at, uh, at primary school playing in school teams uh when i went to uh football school for secondary school where there was not really any rugby i carried on playing at my club dorking just a little bit in the holidays i was small and weedy and uh, i think <laughs> i was probably 14 when i played my last game or training or whatever it was with them and um I remember doing a tackle on someone who's bigger than me and getting it horribly wrong and seeing stars. And you saw stars. Yeah, I saw stars. I felt groggy, uh, and then got up and, and got on with it. Came home, didn't tell your parents because you didn't or didn't think there was anything wrong with it. Just just got on with it. Um, you know, so sort of only, only years later, you sort of realised, oh, that's that's what happened. That's what I've been talking about. That's that's getting a concussion.
0: In 2014, when Owen shifted from being the chief sports writer at The Times to the rugby union correspondent, brain injuries in the sport, due to revelations on the other side of the Atlantic, was somewhat the elephant
2: in the room. I knew this was a a big concern primarily because the news from the court cases in NFL in American football.
1: Hard-hitting numbers today in a new study about football and head trauma. 99% of the brains of former NFL players studied were damaged. Out of 111 brains examined, all but one had CTE, the disease caused by repeated blows to the head.
2: This is a massive deal, a sort of a multi-million dollar lawsuit.
1: The NFL concussion case continues. 31 players who filed the petition claim the class action settlement doesn't allow allow for equal protection for all the players who have dealt with CTE.
0: That lawsuit CTE. against American football's NFL began in 2012. Four and a half thousand former pros came forward. The final agreement would allow for up to one billion dollars in compensation to be paid to retired players who are suffering serious
2: conditions linked to repeated head trauma. And people were starting to ask questions in rugby, well, what about us? No one really knew the answer, and quite often the answer was, well, it's not not really a problem over here. We don't use our head as a weapon like they do in in, in NFL. That's not going to be an issue for us.
0: So they reckoned. But during the 90s, rugby went from being an amateur game to a professional one. The players became bigger, fitter, An impact was therefore harder and, being professionals, the players naturally played
2: more the way their week changed in that they weren't just turning up for training say two evenings a week after work they were turning up for training four or five days a week during the weekday the number of hits if you like or collisions that uh, a rugby player would have had pre-95 before the game went professional had suddenly been increased I don't know that's one of the questions tenfold twentyfold fivefold but basically these men were doing it every day of their working lives
0: Gradually, the hour approached when rugby would have its NFL moment.
2: Good morning from the Times Radio newsroom at 2 o'clock. I'm Rob Malarkey. A group of eight rugby union players, including the England World Cup winner Steve Thompson, are suing the game's authorities for negligence. All the players have the same diagnosis dementia with probable chronic traumatic encephalopathy. He earned 73 caps for England, played for the British Lions, and was awarded an MBE. Like many rugby players, he's got the physical scars, but the real price he has paid is in his mind. It's, it's like my memory started going at first, and saying I'd done things when the children got a little bit older, they started sticking up and said, no, no, Dad, you know, you're wrong, you didn't, you didn't do that.
0: Last December, former England World Cup winner Steve Thompson, one of the best players of his generation, shocked the sporting world. Thompson, who's now 42, and a group of other recently retired rugby players sent legal papers to the game's governing bodies claiming the sport had left them permanently brain damaged
2: he's already experiencing symptoms of dementia from repeated blows to the head playing rugby i love this game and i go down to the junior club with my kids because i want them to be involved in the rugby environment do i want them to play at the moment no i don't it was so sad and it was horrifying and it raised such huge questions about the game that had brought him all the adulation and suddenly it just looked deeply flawed and i think for hundreds of thousands of people probably the question was is their game fit for purpose so owen decided to write
0: what turned out to be a thought-provoking series of articles in the times looking at this particular problem of the game Ranging from the stadia of the professional game to the school playing fields, he tried to offer some solutions to the burgeoning problem of safety. Not everyone saluted his efforts.
2: I was getting messages and emails and and comments from people saying, you know, why are you doing this? Are you trying to put yourself out of a job or are you trying to kill your sport or whatever? And my answer, sort of twofold to that, is it would be wrong for a journalist just to stand by and pretend it wasn't happening and in the other is I just feel that by um, writing about it and now talking about it if you're bringing attention to a real major issue with your sport then maybe you can help the sport solve it bring awareness have people thinking about it and talking about it One person Owen contacted when looking into this was Dr Anne McKee Anne is the number one scientist in the world when it comes to brain trauma through sport So he got on the phone Does it remain the case that you- Have studied more brains of former sports people than any other scientist in the world. Yes,
1: that is clearly
2: true. Could you give me the numbers? Well we have uh over a, a thousand in the bank. She's got over a thousand brains in her Boston Brain Bank, mainly their um NFL brains. She knows more about CT than anyone else. So I wanted to do an interview with her to ask what she thought about rugby. For me, it was kind of a jaw-dropping interview. Yeah, I mean, uh, another, another sport waiting to uh, explode, I think. Waiting to explode, did you say? I really thought I knew my territory. I wrote a piece in The Times at the start of the 2018 rugby season, which was really a sort of a letter for parents, if you like. I'd written this column saying, I know you're worried about rugby, but um, I don't think you should be. My point was that the information we have on rugby the stats on rugby shows that up until about the age of 13 or 14 it's no more dangerous than any other sport that that your kids might play at school but where my thinking was is where it might get a bit worse is with this kind of injuries that we that we, you can see so like a a knee or a, or a leg or an ankle or a hand or something that can be wrapped up in a bandage and mended in a few weeks or whatever. M- maybe there the danger is slightly greater, but uh, given what a great game it is and what pleasure it can bring, I think that's, um, that's a risk worth taking. That was my thinking till I spoke to Anne McKee. And there are two things that she says to me that, um, well, three things actually. One, I didn't know that she had rugby brains in her brain bank at all. I didn't know about Barry Taylor until then. So that was like, oh, okay. So there is probably no distinction between rugby and NFL. She only had a, a dozen odd brains in there of rugby players. So again, small sample, but similar findings. So that was one thing she found. The second thing was of her American football players. You didn't have to have been a professional to have this cte she had brains in there from people who'd stopped playing at high school they still had this cte but we've also seen cte in, in high
1: school and younger players uh it generally isn't as severe but 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 we definitely see
2: it that i found pretty horrifying because that does that mean then that schoolboys in and schoolgirls in rugby in the uk and around the world it could be a problem for them too and also what we talked at some length about was it's not just the concussions that can cause this problem. There was a point about five years ago when some scientists, leading scientists, were saying, well, maybe if you have four concussions, you should stop, or maybe you should have five concussions. At what point could it be detrimental in your life? And she was saying, no, no, that, that's not it at all. The concussions, the ones where you might lose consciousness or see stars or whatever, yes, those are the worst ones. But it's, it's all the other sub-concussive blows, as they're called. The other ones, where you, the ones that you might shake off or may, maybe not even notice that happen mm. to you. It's an accumulation of all those things. Even though they're silent
1: and the individual player may be unaware of them, uh, over time, with accumulation,
2: they can be quite dangerous. So it's not just the big hits, it's every hit?
1: It's the it's little hits. That
2: break it down over time. It's a bit like football. we now know that heading the ball can be bad for you. Well, you don't even think about that when you're playing football, so the same in rugby just that just the small knocks, the accumulation of small knocks, yes, they can be bad for you too. And the fact is that school kids or junior and mini rugby players, they're getting small knocks all the time, so that's what I found scary
0: and what did you think about rugby union? Did
2: you think that kids should or shouldn't play? She said that she was pro-sport. I still believe in individual choice. It's important for us to make clear what are the inherent risks. She said if they, if they desperately want to play, then maybe they could start introducing it from, say, 11, 12, 13.
1: I, I think it's a sport that's got a lot of inherent risks contact just like american football i don't see any reason for a kid to be playing
2: it. one of her points was that the more years you accumulate the higher risk you are of developing um, neurodegenerative disease later in your life so she says why why have you got kids playing at the age of eight or nine or whatever thank you hugely for taking the time to talk to me yeah well, good luck with your story
0: In a moment, Owen will look at the problems and possible solutions facing the rugby world following the recent revelations. Before that, to read more of his brilliant reporting and the rest of what the Times and Sunday Times sports desk has to offer, why not get a subscription to the Times and the Sunday Times? Sign up today and enjoy one month free. Visit thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times.
1: Will she make some questionable decisions along the way? Definitely. The new series Queenie is now streaming on Hulu. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync... Things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless: How to get thirty? Thirty. How to get thirty? How to get twenty? Twenty. Twenty. How to get twenty? Twenty. How to get fifteen? Fifteen. 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 Just fifteen bucks a month. So, give it a try at mintmobile.com/slash switch. Forty five dollars up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited, more than forty gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com.
0: How does the physical aspect of the game work at a younger age? Because I'm pretty sure it's changed since I was at school.
2: Yeah, so the RFU uh, who run the game in this country, they have done some, some very good work on this. Ten years ago, you started rugby and you were sort of kind of thrown in, if you like. But it's changed since then. And they will now, not only you're not allowed to play contact rugby till the age of nine, you start off with short-numbered games And slowly, as you go through the age groups, um, different elements of the game are introduced. So you're not allowed to push in a scrum initially. The line-out doesn't come in until you're 13, I think, now. The whole way that um, rugby is introduced is um, one to keep risk and the dangerous elements of the game away as far as possible until the young players have developed and learnt the right techniques to be able to play with them to keep themselves as safe as possible. So they have done some pretty smart work on that. Well, that's actually
0: sophisticated and quite complicated. What are the statistics like for concussions at a junior level? I mean, does that mean that we don't have them anymore, or do they still happen?
2: Those stats are phenomenally hard to come by. The RFU has done some work on this. 16 schools participating, 26 teams. That's a small sample, and they found that in 2018 to 19, under-13 age group, zero concussions. That went up through under-15 and under-18 level. Across the age groups, they found that the rate was one concussion in every seven games.
0: Which is still pretty high. Now, that's one concussion. What about the sub-concussive
2: blows? Um,
0: presumably, no-one's
2: measuring those. No, no-one is. I, I, the, the science doesn't know enough about what is a dangerous... Sub concussive blow and what isn't? When you head a ball, which header is a, might be a problem for you and which isn't? When you're playing bumper cars in your local fair dodgems and, and someone smashes you behind and you have that whiplash, which is so hilarious, you know, is that a sub-concussive blow, because you don't actually even need to have your head hit. It's like whiplash in a car or whatever. It's the brain that bouncing in the inside of your skull, which sounds like a cartoon, but it's not really that funny after all. No one knows at what point is a sub-concussive blow dangerous for you or not. Certainly no one has found a way yet of, of counting these blows. Fire in. There's also the question of being so protective that all kinds of activities are ruled out what is safe and what isn't falling off a horse is dangerous going skiing is dangerous crossing the road is dangerous this is the really the the issue here is at at what point do we think rugby is crossing the line and, and where do we put the line to make it a little bit
0: more personal you've been the rugby correspondent you have two sons how old are they now 17 and 22 and they both play rugby and they both did at school right yeah so you have been doing all this research while your sons have been playing at school, and now more and more of evidence has has come to light about this.
2: How has that discussion proceeded inside your family? The first thing to be said here is I never set out to make rugby players of my sons. I wanted them to have a a full, broad range sporting experience, which I kind of think they have done. They both decided of their own accord that. Um, rugby was the the number one sport for them and they have had so much pleasure from it. They have loved the game itself, the physicality, the joy, the co- camaraderie between their friends is a huge thing. That's the background to, to that question. Concussion in rugby is something I've been aware of as we've been discussing throughout this podcast. I didn't think it was a problem for them. I hadn't thought that concussions at that level was something that you should worry about because I thought it was okay. We have discussed this at over meal times. Um, for goodness' sake, at uh, lockdown, you have enough meal times with your kids. <laughs> uh, this, they're at the age where they make their own decisions now. Um, what what decision would I've made if my boys were now seven or eight or something, and I was going, should you or shouldn't you? I, I, you know, it would be nice to have certainty in all these things. When I wrote about it recently, my own mother sent me a text saying, what are you going to do about the boys? I go, well, I don't know. Um, (laughs) I think this is why this is such an important thing to talk about. We need to focus on it as much as possible to make sure that everything is as safe as it can be. If I was starting again now, I would make as tight as checks as I possibly could about... The coaching levels in the club or the school that my boys were going to, the concussion protocol and education was as, as high as it should be. Now, is it fair to say that if parents
0: stop their kids playing rugby, a fair few of them say, we just don't want this, as things currently stand, then that's going to mean, over the medium to longer term, the, the death of the sport?
2: Yeah, I, th- I slightly worry that a tidal wave could be brewing here and it could come crashing down parents concerned for the health and safety of their kids that is the sort of the existential threat to the game if you like you could see it spreading like uh, one or two parents making that hard decision then you could see a few others going well if that's what they think then that's what I think too
0: I mean, one of the things that struck me during the conversation is when you were talking earlier about how already they've developed protocols for children to introduce the more physical aspects of the game as they get older. It's got me wondering if there's not a version of the sport that could be played without so much physicality. In other words, whether it's absolutely essential to rugby union to have those aspects that cause the most damage.
2: What you're talking about is a game without tackling... All the statistics show that it's the tackling that causes the problem and it tends to be the player doing the tackling rather than the ball carrier that uh, sustains the most head injuries. In France and before lockdown, in community rugby, they were trialling new tackle law where you're only allowed to tackle uh, waist downward. The separation of distance between my head, if I was tackling you and your head, is so much further. So head-to-head contact it, it is far harder, much, much safer In France, you're only allowed to tackle to waist height up to the age of 15, I think. That's the sort of thing that needs to come into the game.
0: You can't have a version of rugby where you get rid of the tackling and you just do the free running.
2: You can't. At that point, I think rugby is is done. The number of tackles in a game has gone up hugely over the last 20 years. So the authorities are now looking at a version of the game which will encourage the teams to be more spread out so there will be more space on the pitch, more running and less tackling.
0: I'm kind of wondering whether or not the changed version of the game wouldn't be more popular in
2: schools than the old one. Possibly and probably it would be. One of the things that I've noticed as clear as day over the last 20 years is how rugby at school level has uh, increasingly imitated rugby at professional level. So physically more imposing, stronger, um, put on weight. If you looked at a first 15 in a school rugby team now the athletes look completely different to the way they did 30 years ago. But also, the way the game is played tend to mirror the professional game increasingly as well, which is more physicality and greater hits and less of the balletic, beautiful stuff and running into space that um, that is so easy on the eye. I agree with you in that respect. Um, lots of people would enjoy that more. I'm not clear whether what that means
0: is that the, the game's got to change at the grassroots level and build up to the professional level, or actually you've got to change it at the professional level so the people at the
2: grassroots see that and see that as the way to go. I would say both. The professionals are, are, are your models, aren't they? On which people base the way they play and the, they're the players that, we try, that kids try to emulate. But at the same time, if, if you have a, a free and more open game from an earlier age, then you will start developing a, a different game in itself. I mean, one of the things that you could do I mean, it is just have fewer players on the pitch. Fewer players is more space, which is less tackles and more running. That sounds like it's extreme. People say, well, if you go down to 13 then you're just playing rugby league and that's sacrilegious, but maybe <laughs> it's just good for the game.
0: Okay, well, that's a really good point at which to ask a final question. Um, if you were to guess, you have your kind of rugby writer's crystal ball in front of you and you were to look at the game being played in 25 years' time, do you think it will look different?
2: Yeah, I think it'll look very different. And if it doesn't look different, then it probably won't be there at all. Because if rugby doesn't change, then people will be making decisions that they, they don't want their kids to be playing it. And that's the existential problem. I believe rugby will change. It's the responsibility of the people who run the game to make it make sure that it does. I don't think it has to change a huge amount, but I think it will look different. It has to look different.
0: contacted the RFU the sports governing body while making this podcast. They told us player welfare is fundamental and at the heart of the training delivered to coaches referees and medics at all levels of the game in England. They also said the rules in operation ensure maximum possible safety for children allowing players the time to learn rugby basics before contact is gradually introduced. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times with me, Dave Doronovich, and my guest, Owen Slott, the rugby correspondent at The Times. You can read more of Owen's work at thetimes.co.uk or in print. The producer was Will Rowe, the executive producer is Poppy Damon, and sound design was by Carla Patella. If you have a story you think we should be covering, maybe an idea for a future episode or even thoughts on what you've just heard, you can send us an email by writing to storiesofourtimes at thetimes.co.uk. See you again soon. Subscribe today and get one month free at the times.co.uk forward slash stories of our times.